All right. Hey, so let me take just a little bit of time and talk about what we're doing today. These four the city symposiums have been a part of the mission of our church for quite some time. And the idea behind a for the city symposium is that we believe that the church in the city should work for the thriving of the city. We should love our neighbors and we should love our city. And one of the things that we like to think about as a church is that if we went away, would neighbors that don't even know Jesus feel the impact of that loss? And so we want to work for the good of the city. And as we work for the good of the city, these symposiums are a time to wrestle with some of the deep questions of flourishing. What does it mean to do your job for the glory of God? What does it mean to engage, as we did a couple years ago, the gospel and issues of race and reconciliation? What does it mean? What does it mean to have a marriage that reflects the goodness of Jesus and his church and to work for the good of the city in the home. And so these are things that really matter. And here's what's crazy. There are areas of flourishing in the city that as the church engaged, we get celebrated like crazy. So everybody agrees that we should love and serve the poor. Amen? Like that, that matters. And so whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, caring for the poor and loving single moms and working for the good of people that are marginalized, everybody says, yes, that's good. But there's other issues of flourishing that if the church is really doing her job, we won't just be telling the city what the city wants to hear, but we'll actually be functioning as a prophetic form of resistance to what's corrupt and broken in the city. And so today is one of those. Today is a moment for us to look at God's vision for marriage, to wrestle with the why of marriage, and then to pray and to actually engage our hearts so that we could be the kind of people who have a vision that's in line with God's vision of marriage for the good of our neighbors, a vision that's for our holiness and for our formation and for the mission of God to be advanced. So I'm under no illusions that everybody's going to like everything that's said today, uh, but my prayer is that whatever you hear today, that you would actually be willing to open your Bibles and to wrestle with the claims of Scripture about what it means to be a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage and to pray that God would help you to reset what might be your cultural views of marriage and to actually fight to have a prophetic Christian view of marriage. And so we're going to hopefully serve you well. We've got Chad Kinzer, who's going to do our first session on the why of marriage. Then we've got Brian Elliott, who's amazing. He's one of our seasoned leaders that serves so many couples in our church. He's going to talk about communication because communication is really easy in marriage. It never goes wrong, never goes wrong. Right? I mean, I know my wife always completely understands me, and I completely understand her, and there's never any tension or conflict. And then we're going to talk about, we're going to have Leslie Poe. We, we gave her the short straw. Leslie Poe gets to talk about sex in marriage, right? And that's going to be amazing. Like, welcome to staff, Leslie. <laughs> welcome to staff. You get to, you get to go full send mode on a Saturday morning about sex. Okay, so here's what I'd love to do. Um, let me pray for you. And let's just open our hearts to the Spirit of God and to the Word of God, and then I'm going to welcome Chad Kinzer up here. Father, thank you so much that in your providence you brought us here on this day to sit together, to be together, to be encouraged, to be strengthened, and to be challenged. And I pray that what's said from this pulpit would actually serve towards the end of a countercultural prophetic witness in our city. We want our marriages to be strengthened so that we can love and serve each other, but we also want our marriages to be strengthened so that we can love and serve the city. So would you help us and would you strengthen us and would you fill us with your spirit today? We pray all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, 
Amen. Now, one other thing before Chad comes, uh, we're going to do a Q&A panel at the end of our symposium. And so any questions that you have, anything that you want to ask, anything that comes up as we go, feel free to text in your questions to that number right there, and we'll get to those at the end of today. Now, uh, you guys put your hands together and welcome my brother, Chad Kinser. Guys, it's my first time walking up those steps. <laughs> I have never gone up those steps before, and somewhere there might just be a sniper in the room that clipped my ankle. Man. If you don't know how to party, just ask me. Man, I'm so glad to, to open this day with you guys and to unfold our first session. And uh, what we're talking about today is something that's actually um, encouraged me over the, the course of weeks as I've been thinking about this. And even as the, the day has gone closer to talk about this with you guys, this has been something we've been talking about as a, as a leadership team since around May. And so to actually see this day come to fruition, the prayers we've prayed, uh, we want this day to be nourishing. And so much of what I'm going to talk about today and the why of marriage uh, is stuff that has captured my heart and my mind for years, but also more important to this talk uh, is the benefit of a lot of conversations I've had um, with, with Josh. And so uh, he has been an influence and an impact on kind of the, the way I'm shaping the content today. And so I want to say thank you, not only to God for whatever might be helpful, but also to, uh, to the help of my friend Josh Curry. So let's jump in today and, uh, and get started. Hey, I'll never forget uh, the emotions that washed over me like a flood the day that I stood at the altar and the doors at the back of the sanctuary opened up and my bride stood at the other end. I'll never forget. Um, I was probably 12 years old then. <laughs> and uh, it was like, this guy's way too young to be married. Uh, and man, you probably can't tell in that picture, but <laughs> I was crying like, like I was 12 years old and someone had stolen my lunch or something, right? Like, uh, just a flood of emotions covered me. The, the doors at the back of the sanctuary opened up and it was like this Shekinah moment that it was an afternoon wedding and so the sun was right around her and it was what it was supposed to be at least as I was thinking about the day. I knew on that day that I loved that woman but I know today that I, I still love her 14 years in and I can say on that day I, I didn't know what I didn't know. You know I, and if you've been married like I, you just you just don't know what you don't know. You just know what you know that day and you're like hey, let's let's do this. I, th I thought I understood the framework of covenant. I knew what I was getting into was a commitment. I understood the framework of covenant. But you don't know the depth of covenant until you live in it. You don't know the depth of covenant until you live in it. Things like miscarriage and depression, loved ones passing away, the ripple effects of two people from two very different backgrounds coming together, financial setbacks, communication ruts. Shame playing into unnamed insecurities, not being responded to in the way you hope to be responded to, starting a family, sexual brokenness, job loss, career change, broken promises, the list could keep going, couldn't it? But this is the landscape, this is the topography where covenant is played out. Like those are the things where our vows get tested. The things that you say on that day that meant so much actually get tested in those other kinds of moments when the sun isn't shining so bright. 
And one of the things I like to talk to young couples about more and more these days as they come, and especially in our church full of young couples who, who are getting married all the time, is this idea where they want to have this ceremony where they get to say their own vows to each other. That they want to write something unique to express their love and their passion for each other, things that are unique to their relationship. And I always want to remind them, hey, whatever else is going to be a part of your ceremony, I love that you guys have such passion for each other and you want to tap into creative writing skills and all those sorts of things. I love that. But whatever else is going to be a part of your ceremony, if you want to say those things, we're also going to say some vows that are historically rooted. We're going to say those things too. And, and here's why. Because your marriage is bigger than you. Your, your marriage is bigger than you. Sure, it involves you, but your marriage actually stands in a long line of other marriages that have come before you. And the kind of fidelity you're seeking in this marriage is not a different kind of fidelity than others have sought. It's the same kind of faithfulness. And this is especially true in Christian marriage. Everyone submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ has committed to a common covenant, seeking a common fidelity before the face of a common Lord. And this gets to the heart and the gravity of tension for marriage in all of us. All of us would, would suggest today, if, if we were to get down inside of ourselves, we would suggest, hey, there's actually a tension in this union. As beautiful as it is, as glad as I am to have the one sitting next to me, there, there, there's, there's a tension down here that we live with at times, a tension of the soul, something that rings out deep inside of us. All of us are able to recognize the uniqueness of the marriage relationship. We're, we're able to recognize the seriousness of it. It's, it's obvious to us. This, our sensibilities communicate, hey, this is a relationship that's different. It's important. But where does that gravity come from? Where does the wonder of this relationship come from? Why is it this way that we have this tension that sometimes sits in us with discontent because we don't know how to grab a hold of it even though we know that this thing is important. And we've got to do something with that tension. We can't just leave it unanswered. We've got to hang meaning on this covenant. We've got to hang meaning. Why are we doing the thing that we're doing? Why does this hit me in such a serious way? And so what we do, we, we have to answer that question. We grab for it in all kinds of different ways. And there are ways that are common in our culture that you probably hear of them. And, and so I'll just name a few of them. Reasons that we give for marriage, and I'm going to call them marriage myths today. And the, and the first would be this, that marriage is domestic partnership. That the reason this thing is so important is because it's a domestic partnership. This is a, a shared partnership where we're trying to build a life together. It's primarily, in this view, it's primarily built around and motivated by success and achievement. That what can we do better together than we could apart to be better consumers of the world around us and acquire for ourselves a host of experiences to live an approving life. That marriage is primarily about a domestic partnership. Now what's interesting about all of these marriage myths is that on the one hand we would go, yeah, well, I, even I hear you say that and I know that maybe I might take that view. Certainly marriage is more than that, but all of these myths have a bit of the truth. That part of what is happening in marriage is it is a partnership where we build a life together. But is that all that it is? Another view a myth of marriage is that it's about romantic fulfillment, that marriage is primarily about love and passion, this idea of the one, that you're the one for me, you know, that I saved myself for the one, and I'm looking for the one if you're single like an Oompa Loompa out there, that there's got to be someone at the end of the rainbow for me. The way you know that your spouse is the one is because they're the one that you gave vows to. 
They're, they're the one that you, and you know that you've been duped by this myth of romantic fulfillment, marriage being primarily about that, when you hear people say things like, well, we just fell out of love, and we're just not compatible anymore, as though your compatibility and your fire of romance was the point of the whole thing. Now, what's true, like, there actually is a unique kind of love that plays into marriage. That's why you married this one and you feel things for this one that you don't for anyone. You forsake all others for this one. There is something of romance, but is that primarily what it is? The other idea of, of marriage is, is conservative values, that the primary purpose of marriage is about a family. That the reason we're going to get married is to have a context of having kids and raising kids and building the ideal family. And we would agree that the family is the ideal framework. It's the ideal relationship where kids ought to be raised. But is that the purpose? And you know you've bought into this idea plenty of empty nesters. It's actually a fear of mine where when my kids leave someday, will my wife and I still have communion? Right? And you know you buy into this idea of family focus when you cease to have communion with your spouse and it's simply about the shared mission of raising kids. The other idea of marriage, it's a myth that we can grab onto at times, hang meaning on this, is that it's about companionship, that we wouldn't be lonely in the world, that it's primarily a, a relationship that's about relational communion and sexual fulfillment, that this is one where I recognize that my sexuality isn't to be just sewn out there abroad. It's actually to be laced to someone with commitment and covenant. And so this is primarily about a place to have that kind of union. And again, it's not that that doesn't happen. That there's a part of it. But, but is that all that marriage is? We would say no. But these are things that we try to attach to it. Maybe a fifth one to throw in here is a deconstructionist view that just says, hey, I'm not even sure we should waste our time with marriage because it's a failed institution altogether. And that's a growing ideology for Gen Xers and Millennials and on down because we grew up uh, really suffering in the wake of the divorce culture, right? I mean, it's, it's still the stat that in, in our country, 50% of marriages end in divorce. And for those who claim a religious affiliation, as of 2021, it's a little bit better, but not much. It's 35%. 35% of those who claim a religious affiliation are still getting divorced. And maybe a bit more shocking and a reason for our symposium today the state of Oklahoma is second in the 50 states for divorce. And so is this even worth our time? Does it work, right? The deconstructionist view that, hey, maybe we should just cohabitate and have a relationship together and not really put the label on it is a growing view. And yet with all of these kinds of things, there's a discontent. We try to attach these meanings and hang it on this union. Is it about companionship? Is it about the family? Is it primarily about building a successful life together? We attach these things and there's a discontent, isn't there? Even as I named these things, you go, no, it has to be more than that. It, we wake up in the morning at times, day in and day out with our routines and go, is there anything more than this? There's a discontent in us. There's a wandering. There's an unrest because none of these, none of these satisfy are longing for an enduring meaning. They, they just don't. We have deeper thoughts and deeper desires that still cry out. So, what do we do? Are we left to just kind of hope for the best and put them all together and just hang on? What if, let me suggest this today, and here's where we'll take a turn. What if what you and I intuitively know by design, hang with me on this, 
what if what you and I intuitively know by design, that marriage is bigger than us? The reason that it's a union that we're both drawn to with anticipation and joy, young girls think about it from early on, and, and boys, when they start to kind of wake up to that, they start thinking about the kind of woman they want to marry, and maybe the kind of man they want to be, and the kind of vision they want to have. It's, an, it's, a, it's a union that has anticipation and joy to it. The reason that there's a collective hopefulness and gasp every time a bride enters the room in a wedding ceremony and we stand up, intuitively by design, the reason that marriage hurts so badly when there's a fracture, what if all of those things that we know at the core are a shadow that points us to the substance? You say, what do you mean? Let me point you to a scripture in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is the Apostle Paul pulling back from Genesis and quoting there that first marriage union. But then he says this in 32. What if all of our intuition by design is a shadow pointing to substance? He says, and this mystery is profound. This whole marriage thing, man leaving father and mother and holding fast to his wife and the two becoming one, this union that we know is important and deep and different, this mystery is profound. All of that, I'm saying, he says, refers to Christ and the church. That what's happening here captured in your life, in your spouse's life, in real time, is actually about something else. So the reason that something in us testifies to the weight of marriage both the intensity of marriage and the joys and the heartbreak of marriage and sorrows is because it's an icon that points to a greater union that stands at the center, the apex, and the destination of all creation. This union actually points to that union. And it's not only that our marriages are an illustration of Jesus and his love for the church. Somehow in our marriages, you might even say, if you're a Christian, you've gotten to know God's love better because of the love here. But that's not primarily what he's talking about. What he's talking about is that the love and the covenant that Jesus has with his people, listen to this, a love that initiates and doesn't hide. A love that pursues, covers, and defends. A love that is other-directed, sacrificial, and enduring. A love that is so determined, this is countercultural, a love that is so determined and unashamed of its object that it's not afraid of words like commitment and covenant and promise. A covenant so strong that it becomes the playing field for where new life is created and can grow. Hey, does that sound like marriage? Does that sound like marriage? Yes, it does. Because it is. This is the heart of the Father sending his Son and the power of the Spirit to go have his bride, the church. People like you and me who would confess him as Lord. This sounds like marriage. And that is the bedrock. This is what Paul is talking about. That's the bedrock and the framework for what our marriages are supposed to be like. He's the prototype. What's happening with Jesus and the church and his union to you that's unbreakable, that nothing can separate. That is the prototype. Because he is like that toward us, we must be like that toward one another. Because he is like that toward us, we must be like that toward one another. And he says it's a mystery. And this is amazing language, right? And it's not like mystery is in like it's unsolvable. 
It's not like mystery is that it's unknowable. It's, it's a mystery. This whole thing about Jesus and the church defining marriage is a mystery because it's bottomless. It's bottomless. We're going to spend the rest of our lives and all of eternity discovering the depths and the beauty of God's covenant with us and how it shapes us as his people. All through your marriage, you're going to spin the diamond of what the covenant means between you and your spouse and recognize that it's an even deeper drive of God toward you. That that is about this, and this is formed by that. It's a mystery that it's unknowable, that it's bottomless. It's also a mystery because God has chosen, hey, check this, this is wild. God has chosen to allow you and me to participate with him in our common experiences of marriage to both get a glimpse of his character, so you're going to get to know what God is like in marriage, but also to display to the world the union of Jesus and the church. So one of the things that I'll say to couples in a wedding ceremony that I have a message that I'll use, and one of the things I'll always say is your faithfulness in this union will be your greatest witness to the world. You might have missionary endeavors. You might do amazing things for the kingdom of God through good deeds and acts of service to the poor and the marginalized. But your faithfulness in this union will be your greatest witness to the world. Because it's a picture, an icon down here that points to something else much greater that all of us are driving towards. All of us are dry. Ecclesiastes 3 is going to say that God has set eternity in the hearts of man. There's something that Christian, non-Christian, we're grabbing for to say, is there more than this? And this is why the answer of our ambition for our marriages and all the different myths that we throw out there will never satisfy us. Because it's not about you. Your story can't hold a marriage. The story that you're trying to build together can't hold it because... What happens if it gets interrupted? What happens if the plans change? What happens if the dreams are dashed? Your story can't hold it. You can't curate yourself enough. You can't image control your family enough. You can't offer yourself enough experiences to lock it all down with substance. But it all shifts when you see that your story actually is now supposed to be folded in to a larger capital S story of what God is doing in the world through marriage. When your story is folded into his story, when you see him and what he's done as the prototype for you and this, and now this is caught up into that, there's a whole different framework that begins to last because that is what lasts. He is what lasts. The Bible begins with a marriage in the Garden of Eden. It's a marriage gone bad. It tells us about the fracture of that relationship and how sin enters into the world. But it's not as though on that day marriage ended. That's why we're here today as many of us married couples. Marriage wasn't done away with. It wasn't done away with for God and it wasn't done away with for us. It's still given as a gift to be received and as a means through which God points us to himself. The rest of the Old Testament is about God pursuing and preparing his unfaithful wife, Israel, He's betrothed to her. He's, he's saying, I'm going to protect you and provide for you and care for you and cultivate flourishing. Yet Israel keeps turning all the time. The whole Old Testament is about this faithful pursuit of a groom after an unfaithful wife. We're constantly turning our heads to what other loves. 
The New Testament is about Jesus coming to redeem, to win, to keep, to have, to hold his bride, the church. And the Bible ends with a wedding feast where Jesus is finally united to his bride. And we will live with him in perfect garden city with uninterrupted presence forever. When you see that your story is folding into that story, that the story of scripture is actually about a union, a marriage, a covenant, it's different. Our stories are meant to be framed and carried by that story. And this story helps us understand also why marriage gets so difficult. Brian Elliott often says this to the marriage class, marriage is the best and hardest thing that you'll ever do. And everyone said amen. This story actually helps us understand why is it so difficult. Well, it's true that we are forgiven sinners. We aren't yet made perfect as we will be on that day we meet Jesus. So we're still in the fight against sin. And when you put two sinners together, you just multiplied the odds for conflict. You just multiplied the odds for conflict. But it's not only that, but you and I have an enemy that rages. You and I have an enemy that rages. And it's no secret why he would attack marriages. Because in your marriage, Satan sees an image of the union that has brought his defeat. If your marriage is a profound mystery that refers to Jesus and the church, then your marriage is an image that constantly reminds Satan of what has crushed his skull. And so it's no wonder he rages. He lashes out. If I can't tear down that union, maybe I can tear down yours. If someone broke into your house, didn't steal anything, but took a knife to every picture of you and your spouse, that would feel intensely personal. Maybe even worse than stealing stuff in your house. That's exactly what Satan is trying to do, break in and attack the icon. Because it's intensely personal. Jesus and his love, his commitment to the church. And the grace of Christian marriage in this age is a sign twofold. Your marriage is a sign twofold. On the one hand, it's a sign of the union of Jesus to the church, to the world. Your faithfulness played out in the communities that you live in, the network of relationships that you have, and the story that God would be building by his grace of faithfulness is a testimony that Jesus does really stay with his girl. He really does do it. But it's also a sign, it's a sign to the enemy, your marriage and the faithfulness there is a sign to the demonic powers that their time is short and they will not rage forever, but they will be destroyed. Your marriage is a sign, your marriage is warfare, because it's about that. And so briefly I want to wrap up today with some application for here and now. Ephesians 5, this passage, it goes on to speak to what this means in real time for both husbands and wives. And so husbands, you are commanded, you are commanded by the grace of God to reflect Jesus, the head of the church, and love your wife. It says this in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word 
so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And so husbands, with the help of God, you are called, like Jesus, toward the church to pursue your wife. Not just to win her, but to sustain that covenant, to keep that covenant to keep moving that covenant forward just like he initiates with us. You're called to honor her in the kind of love that you offer her. It's not a love that you offer to get things back. It's a love that you offer because she's an image bearer of the most high God. And she's dignified by him. And you honor her that way. With the help of God, you are called, as Christ does to the church, help her grow like he does us into all that she's called to be, to everything that she's called to be, to let her flourish and to do everything you can to help her do so. To offer a love that doesn't demand to be served, but to serve. Jesus says, I have come as a ransom for many, not to be served, but to serve. This is how husbands must love our wives. And to take care of your wife just as you would take care of your own body. This is what the scriptures suggest. This is a different vision of marriage. Now, are we going to be perfect at that? The idea is not perfection. The idea is repentance and a cry of grace to form us. Right? Wives, you are called and commanded by the grace of God to reflect the church's devotion to Jesus. We're both given unbelievable tasks and responsibilities. You're called to reflect the church's devotion to Jesus as you respect and love your husband. It says this to wives in 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his own body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Jesus, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I know that's a very unpopular couple of verses in this cultural moment. But just to be clear, this has nothing to do with losing your strength. As though the church loses its strength when it attaches to Jesus. This has nothing to do with you abdicating your voice or being silenced as though the church is silent. This has nothing to do with you being less than equal or less privileged. No one considers the church that way. This has nothing to do with you following blindly your husband into sin. It has nothing to do with any of those things. What's happening here is it's a sacred reflection. And all of us have that tension, that echo of the soul that goes, there is something sacred here on both sides. And for you, it's a sacred reflection of the church's love for Jesus. It's rooted in the confidence, not of your husband's ability to be like Jesus, but in confidence you have in your heavenly father as perfect and that he's going to take care of you and he'll take care of him too he'll take care of him too now i want to give a word here for those of you who are single or dating this vision of marriage also touches you it's a vision of being the bride of christ being united to him it's a call to keep yourself holy for him both in body and in soul you're the bride of christ not to give yourself to a thousand other loves, 
but to keep yourself for him and let other things be formed by that love. And you go, yeah, but it's awkward and it's painful in this moment. It absolutely is awkward and painful to keep yourself for him, both whether you're single or you're married. It doesn't get less awkward or painful. But listen to this. It's not as though you're left to that pain and awkwardness by yourself. Jesus understands it and consider him. He has been saving himself to be united to his bride for some 2,000 years now. He doesn't yet have the prize in full as he will have it when we stand before him face to face. He too understands the waiting game. And he does it patiently. And this leads us to Hebrews. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who is both the author and the perfecter, the keeper of your faith. So the last thing I want to say, what is this vision of marriage about Christ and the church? What is it supposed to do for us? Here's what it's supposed to do. Three quick things and we're done. Number one, it's supposed to capture you. Maybe my greatest need, my greatest prayer over the last several months is would you redeem my imagination? Would you capture my imagination again? Would you help me to have a different vision of myself, the world, my home, my family, my vocation? This vision that what you're doing in your house, the daily routines, the coming home after work, the reuniting, the having conversations on the couch, the planning together, the doing all the things, the morning with one another, the, the listening to one another, all of that is God catching you up into a picture of Christ in the church that's not played out in a day or a week or a month, but it's played out over a lifetime learning to give, to sacrifice, to show up, to be faithful. Meant to capture you, that what you're doing points to God. It's also meant to keep you. One of the things that I've added into some of the vows that I, uh, I, I will give couples in, 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 their, uh, in, their, in their vows, good grief, is uh, after we go through all the things, for better, for worse, sickness and health, richer or poorer, I'll say, and may God bring anguish upon me if anything but death separates us. That we would feel the gravity and the ache that this covenant is not a flippant one. It points to the one that our souls crave, Christ in the church. This union is meant to capture us. It's meant to keep us to tether us when our impulses and our thoughts go a thousand other directions. It's meant to bring us back to a base. And lastly, it's meant to form us. Capture us, keep us, and form us. You listen to this, <laughs> what's crazy, uh, there's a pastor that I love that one, one time he said, if, if a pastor can live up to his preaching, he's preaching too small. If a pastor can live up to his preaching, he's preaching too small. I unfold this before you today and I go, I'm not there. I'm not delivering this husband's and wives roles and as an expert. I'm trying to think about and unfold what scripture is teaching. But to do this, hey, we're going to need some help. We're going to need some help. This is a call to formation. This is a call to depend on God. Hey, do you know who's a bigger fan of your marriage than you? Husbands, do you know who's a bigger fan of you imitating Christ in your home? God. 
Wives, do you know who's the biggest fan of you imitating the love of the church for her Savior, Jesus? God. He's not left you to this on your own. It's actually an invitation not only to image him, but to come close to him as he would help you carry it out in the world. It's meant to capture you. It's meant to keep you. It's meant to form you, to draw you into relationship with the Most High God. And so I'll never forget that day where I looked at the back of the room and those doors opened and I was standing there, a fresh-shaven young man. But that day, great as it holds me still, is going to pale into comparison on the day when it's all of us standing on the other side of that aisle. And it's Christ, our groom, standing there to present us without spot or wrinkle or any such thing to the Father. This is about that. And that shapes this. Praise be to God. Let's pray together. Jesus, your union to us, we just want to confess what the scripture said is true in prayer. It stands at the center, it stands at the apex, and it stands as the destination of all creation. And Father, would you help us have a renewed imagination for our marriages? Would you capture us again with the beauty of what you've done to us and how our thing is caught up now into that? Would a picture of your love be present in our, in our marriages? God, would you help us as husbands and wives grow closer into a dependence on you to be kept and to be formed? And we submit this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.